Before I get into the sermon for this morning, I just wanted to uh, let you know we'll, we'll be finishing our current sermon series this morning. Um, next week, we'll be uh, starting a series looking at the last week of Jesus' life, some of the things that uh, we see Jesus spoke passionately about, that he was passionate about, that we see in that last week of his life. And so we'll start that next week and go up through Easter. And I wanted to let you know that this morning, if there's, if there's somebody that uh, you've been inviting to church or, or wanting to invite to church, that maybe you can use that as a catalyst and say, hey, we're, we're starting a new series. It's a great opportunity to jump in. We'll look at uh, this last week of the life of Jesus leading up to Easter. So just wanted to let you know that if you, uh, if you wanted to utilize that information, you are, you are definitely welcome to do that. When it, uh, when it comes to movie revenue at, uh, at the box office in our country last year, there was one movie that just blew every other movie out of the water. Uh, it, it brought in nearly $300 million more than the second place finisher. It was uh, um, pretty crazy. And, and that movie, uh, of course, was the new Top Gun movie that came out last year. Um, and, and no doubt film studios have, have been analyzing this movie to try to figure out how to replicate its success, okay, because it was quite successful in terms of dollars, for sure. And, and so as they've done their study, I imagine that, that these are some of the things they've found that made it successful as a movie. First, it had Tom Cruise, okay, I mean, let's just say it, that, that, was, that had to be one of the things. Uh, second, in a, in a context that is so political, it made no political statements whatsoever. It's kind of a breath of fresh air in that way. So I think you can maybe chalk up some success because of that. Uh, three, it, it, it was this classic storyline where the hero from times past was assumed to be all washed up, uh, but makes an improbable, thrilling comeback to save the day. And I'm sorry if I spoiled the ending for you, but, but you ought to know by now. If Tom Cruise is in the movie, he's going to save the day, so you should know that. Um, but for, for as great as that movie was, and, and I, I did enjoy it very much, there's a message in the, that storyline that if we buy into it, will lead us to a very unbiblical place regarding work. And so the message is this, a person's value is tied directly to their physical ability to perform a task or to perform work of some kind, right? I mean, the, the turning point in the movie is when Tom Cruise, Maverick, gets into this super hornet jet and flies it through the set course in a way that his younger trainees didn't think was possible. So Maverick pushes the plane, he pushes his body to the absolute limits, and he inspires then the younger pilots and gives them this vision of victory that they didn't think was possible before. But would the story still be captivating if a 57-year-old Maverick just couldn't handle the physical demands of that mission? Would the movie have brought in over $700 million if Maverick instead trained the younger pilots and then sent them to perform the mission without him because he just couldn't do it anymore? 
I don't think so, right? I mean, I don't think it probably would have been that successful. And it's, again, it's fine to root for Maverick in the movie. It's, it's a captivating story. But once we leave the movie theater, we have to recognize that physical limitations, especially due to age, do not equate to decreased worth. In this series on work, we, we've been talking about why we should work and how we should work and how we should rest from work. Today, we're going to uh, tackle the topic of retirement. As I, as I stated a few weeks ago, I humbly ask that you permit a guy in his 30s to, to speak on this topic. And Tom made a good point this morning. Paul wrote about raising children in the Bible. So, you know, and he didn't have children himself, so I guess maybe you can, can uh, cut me some slack this morning. But retirement, as we probably think of it today, is, is truly a modern Western development. For much of history, retirement as we know it just wasn't a reality. And, and you know, even though there, there, there might be some value in studying the history of retirement and how we got to where we are today, I, I don't want to spend our time there this morning. Instead, I want to ask the question, what does the Bible have to say about retirement, about our modern concept of retirement? And I think the first thing we, we, we have to keep in mind is what we've been talking about the previous three weeks in this sermon series. In all of our discussion of work, I've reiterated time and time again that our work encompasses more than just our occupation. So our primary vocation is being a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. If our only perspective of work is occupation, then our attitude toward retirement probably won't be very God-honoring. But if our, if our perspective of work includes everything that we do and doing that unto the Lord, then our perspective of reti- our, our attitude toward retirement probably will be God-honoring. So it's important to keep that in mind, that work encompasses so much more than just occupation. The second thing, and this might surprise us a little bit, the Bible does make a brief mention of something similar to our cultural understanding of retirement. So I'd encourage you to open your Bible with me to Numbers chapter 8. We'll see what it has to say there. It's on page 117 in the Pew Bible, if you want to use that. The, The book of Numbers begins in the second year of the people's exodus from Egypt. So they're still learning who God is. They're still learning how God has called them to live. Everything with the Ten Commandments and the tabernacle and the sacrificial system, that stuff's all still pretty new at this point. And at the end of Numbers chapter 8, God spoke to Moses about the Levites. That's the tribe of Israel that had been chosen by God to carry out, his, uh, carry out the ministry of the tabernacle. So follow along with me in Numbers chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 23. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This applies to the Levites from 25 years old and upward. They shall come to do duty in the service of the tent of meeting. 
And from the age of 50 years, they shall withdraw from the duty of the service and serve no more. They minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, but they shall do no service. Thus shall you do to the Levites in assigning their duties. So interestingly, God places an upper age limit for the Levite men who served within the tabernacle. Now, most, most Bible scholars would agree that God gave this command due to the physical nature of the Levitical calling. Now, I'm sure most people don't look at the role of pastor today and consider that to be a physically demanding task, right? I'm not going to try to argue for that this morning. But when we consider the role of the Levites at this point in Israel's history, we do see a task that was physically demanding. And remember, God's people at this point in their history were nomadic. They had just come out of Egypt, and had they obeyed, they would have entered the Promised Land, but they didn't at this point and would be wandering the desert for 40 years. So the tabernacle had to be built at God's, uh, it was built at God's command, and it needed to be disassembled when they moved. It needed to be transported from one place to the next and then reassembled once they got to that location. And the Bible gives us, um, uh, gives us details about the size, the scope of the tabernacle. The, uh, Exodus chapter 26 describes the tabernacle as having dozens of large curtains, some over 40 feet long. I mean, that, that's a huge curtain. Uh, the frames to hold the curtains were 15 feet high. Those frames all had crossbars to connect them, and then there were bases which needed to be sturdy enough to hold the, the frames and the crossbars and the curtains. And then in Exodus chapter 38, we, we are told the weight of the metal used in the construction of the tabernacle. So there was 2,200 pounds of gold, 7,500 pounds of silver, 5,300 pounds of bronze. Uh, it's been estimated based on the, the wood that was used that that would have weighed between two to 3,000 pounds. So that, that would, just those things would be a total of 17 to 18,000 pounds of wood and metal, plus all the fabric, uh, curtains, all the other materials needed to construct the tabernacle. So the Levites were the ones to assemble that, disassemble that. Uh, Numbers chapter 7 talks about some carts that they were given, so we don't know that they had to physically carry those things as the, as the camp moved from one place to another, but they were still responsible in loading it up, unloading it, assembling, disassembling. And then you think about, uh, think about the sacrifices that would have taken place, the bulls that would have been sacrificed on the altar, for example. That bull probably wasn't going to just stand there peacefully and allow it to happen, <laughs> allow its, it, uh, its life to be taken from it. So there's, you know, anybody that's worked with farm animals would know that there's, there's, there's a physicality to that task, to get an animal to do what you need it to do. So, so w when we think about the practicalities of being a Levite, I can see why God would place an upper age limit on such a task. And, and being a man myself, it's probably for the men's own good that God gave that command, because our egos can be the worst thing for our backs sometimes. So God would said, once you're 50, 
You don't do that task anymore. But in the midst of that command, regarding the ceasing of physical labor, we can't miss verse 26. Those over 50 years old were still able and perhaps expected to minister to their Levite brothers. And and many other Bible translations use the word assist their Levite brothers. Their physical work, as it pertained to the tabernacle, may have been done once they reached age 50, but their work in their service of their God was not done. So, what's the point of this passage? Well, it's not that pastors get to retire when they're 50, right? My, my Bible professors, if I came to that conclusion, would want to wring my neck, right? That, that's not what this is talking about. The point is that even when we're physically limited in our work, there's still work we can and should do. And, and this means that this passage has much to say regarding modern retirement in our context today. Modern retirement is not something to be avoided at all costs. Um, In some ways, it's just a response to the reality that our physical bodies break down with age as we live in this fallen world. I'm, I'm not there yet, but my arm is still sore from something I did like two weeks ago, just throwing some things, uh, these fake snowballs in our house. It still hurts. <laughs> just remember, like, man, what's happening? But it's just the reality, right? It, it's, it's the reality in which we live. So, so we shouldn't avoid that, that at all costs, but modern retirement is also not to be seen as the end-all goal. If we look forward to retirement more than we do heaven— there's a problem there. So, so as people whose work, whose vocation is follower of Jesus, we have to think biblically about this concept, modern retirement. And, and if we do that, I think what we'll see is that there are both dangers and blessings that, that, that come with retirement as it's commonly thought of in our society today. So, so let's think about the dangers that can come with that. Um, uh, go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 12. In, in Luke chapter 12, uh, Jesus tells a parable which some people would use as really exhibit A on why the entire concept of modern retirement is sinful, that there's just nothing redeemable about it. But, but let's look carefully at, at the parable and and see if, if it's really the wealth of the man which is in question here, if there's something else that, that's being addressed. So, so Luke chapter 12, uh, verse 13. It's the parable of the rich fool. It says, Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, 
Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, I mean, we have to say that that there are passages in the Bible which speak of the dangers of wealth. Uh, Later in this very chapter, Jesus talks about storing up treasure in heaven. Uh, He he speaks in uh, Luke chapter 18 about uh, the rich ruler. He says how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, James chapter 5 that that we studied uh, a few weeks back contains a warning for the rich. But when Jesus spoke in this passage to the person in the crowd that came up to him, he he wasn't giving a warning about saving money for a later day. That's not what he's talking about here. How did he introduce the parable? He said, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. Parables focused upon the person's attitude toward the wealth that he possessed. The, The rich man in the story, in the parable, was clearly a person of pride who was concerned only with himself. I mean, he's prideful over the fact that he's apparently such a successful farmer that that he can't even store all the abundant crops that, that he's been able to grow. This man would do well to remember that it was God who sent the rain. It was God who caused his crops to grow, the seeds that he'd planted. If God had removed his hand from this man's efforts, then the man would have had nothing to show for all his work, but he apparently forgot that detail. He's prideful. Retirement in America can be something of a prideful status symbol. The, The age of retirement can be seen as a barometer of success, right? I mean, The earlier I retire, the more successful I am, right? I mean, it it can be presented that way. Uh, The economic level at which a person retires can be seen as a barometer of success. So how much a person travels or how many houses they own or or how big their investment portfolio is can be seen as a marker of success. And so as a result, those who can retire earlier and those who have more more disposable income can be easily tempted to become prideful in that. And even just retiring, period, can be an, an occasion for pride. Like, yeah, maybe it, maybe it was five years later than I had planned, but I can't afford that other house, but at least I can live comfortably because of my own efforts. Pride is a, is a dangerous, sinful attitude that can accompany modern retirement. And, and not just retirement, right? I mean, the, obviously we can be tempted in pride in so many seasons and areas of life. But, but there's a uniqueness that can be present with, with modern retirement. And along with pride then is its twin, selfishness. The, the man in the parable here was not only prideful regarding his position, but, but he had planned to spend all of his wealth on himself. I mean, we see that in, in the statement that he pridefully makes to himself. I mean, it didn't matter that there was much work to be done in the world. His focus was on relaxation. 
didn't matter that there were hungry people in the world. His focus was on his own eating and drinking. Didn't matter how bad the world was. His focus was on his own merriment. So God's verdict at the end hits the nail on the head. He had laid up treasure for himself. And so hopefully, again, Jesus told this parable in response to the man who came up to him wanting Jesus to say, hey, tell my brother to give me my part of the inheritance. Hopefully this parable would have made that man in the crowd examine his motives in the request that he'd made to Jesus. And hopefully this parable makes us examine our own motives as well, including our motives for retirement. Do, 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 I, do I think of retirement as a season of life where I get to focus on myself? Is, is my goal, as someone has, has famously said, that, that I want the last check I write before my death to bounce? All right? I mean, is, is that our, our, our goal in it? A temptation of, of retirement is to place ourselves above others, to make decisions that are best for us, to meet my own needs, not those of others. And again, that's a temptation for all of us, right? I'm, I'm not trying to single out anyone. But retirement, as our society prevents it, can serve to increase those temptations. So the rich man in the parable was both prideful and selfish and really, as we're told at the end, uh, he's going to be in for a rude awakening when he soon stands before the throne of God. So when we think about that, because of those dangers regarding modern retirement, a, a person might decide, ah, I'm just going to avoid retiring from occupational work altogether. Just, I'll just work as long as I can, and then I don't have to worry about those things. But, but before we make that decision, it's important to also look at the blessings that come with retirement in our society. And the first blessing that, that I would see is that of service. One of, the, one of the major changes that comes with retiring from occupational work is an increase in the amount of time at a, at a person's disposal. And, and I, I know the math doesn't probably work out this easily, but someone working a full-time job who retires now has 40 hours a week to reallocate for other things. What a blessing that is. That's a blessing. In, in uh, Peter's first letter, he, he wrote to believers who, who might have assumed that the, the second coming of Jesus was going to happen at any moment, like that it had to happen today or tomorrow. Uh, it, it had already been 30 years since Jesus had left the earth. Uh, at, at that time, as Peter wrote, the emperor Nero was ruling in Rome, and that wasn't a good thing for Christians as far as uh, persecution goes. Uh, it seems that the, the people to whom Peter wrote were suffering in, in some way. I mean, his, his letter is marked by statements about suffering. So it's not a stretch to believe that the people longed for and, and maybe were even convinced that Jesus was going to come back very, very soon. Now, tomorrow, you know, not much later than that. And so to them, Peter wrote these words in First uh, Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 7. 
He wrote, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be, so, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So in the, in the midst of this, right, that yes, Jesus is coming back, right? The end is approaching. Peter urged the believers to continue in love, continue in hospitality, continue in service. And I think what I see Paul saying here is that with an eye on the finish line, we ought to continue to persevere, and again, this applies to all of us, right? It has application for every day of our lives that we live, no matter what season of life that we're in. But again, especially in the season of retirement from occupational work, there's an, there's an opportunity to, to love and, and show hospitality and serve others that maybe wasn't possible in previous seasons of life. I've, I've heard pastors speak before about how how they notice that sometimes when a person retires from their job, they'll also retire from the church, right? That those two seem to go hand in hand at times. And the temptations we talked about earlier can, can blind a person to the blessings of, of retirement, can cause them to miss those, those blessings. Now this this isn't a biblical mandate, which I'm about to speak, but I think there's some good uh, biblical principles undergirding it. Um, uh, in the Old Testament, God's people were called to give a tithe of what God had blessed them with. So that meant 10% of their flocks, crops, uh, whatever God entrusted to them. Uh, and, and while the Old Testament command isn't a requirement for God's people today, we, we are to be marked by generosity and service as as disciples of Jesus. What if we viewed God's blessing of time in a similar manner to that of wealth? You know, I said earlier that a, that a person who uh, retires from a full-time job theoretically has 40 hours per week to reallocate. What if we took the principle of the tithe and applied it to our time? Our time in retirement, right? And not just retirement, again, but but specifically speaking about that here. What if I sought to honor God by serving for 10% of 40, four hours a week, a tenth of my increased amount of time, right? Uh, one morning, one afternoon a week. I mean, again, this isn't some hard and fast rule that I'm trying to lay down uh, for everyone to follow. And it, again, it's not just for those occupationally retired, but, but God's kingdom and, and the individuals within God's kingdom are blessed greatly when those who are occupationally retired continue to work by serving others. And, you know, one of the things that I, I, 
I enjoy most about being a pastor is seeing the ways that God works and how he'll arrange things that I just didn't even think would happen or had not planned or anything like that. But it just so happens I can, I can look out the windows in the back right now this morning and see tangibly how our entire church body has been blessed this past week in this way. Because in the midst of the updates going on in our building right now, there was a group of occupationally retired people last week who spent their week painting the hallways in the church and taking down the things on the walls and putting them back up onto the wall again. Right? What, what many of us could not do based on our work schedules, they willingly did as a service to both God and to, to us, uh, us as a church family here. I mean, it's such a cool picture of what we're talking about this morning being, being shown in that tangible way. I'm not sure I can accurately envision what our church would look like if those who are occupationally retired just stopped serving as they are able. Um, whatever it would look like, it would be drastically different. I know that. Um, so I'm thankful. I'm thankful for you who bless me in that way, who bless our church body uh, in that way by your service. And I hope those of us that aren't to that season of life quite yet can be inspired and encouraged as we think about the example that's being set for us there. The, the season of, of occupational retirement has the possibility to be such a blessing if we can leverage those opportunities for service. That's one of the great blessings there. But in addition to that, another blessing is an opportunity for instruction. So because retirement usually comes in the latter years of life, there's often a wisdom that is present during those years that we probably didn't quite have earlier in our lives. The, uh, the early chapters of the book of Proverbs talk about the great blessing that wisdom is. It's to be sought after. It's to be highly valued by God's people. Um, it's essential in helping us to walk in step with God during our life. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 15 states that wisdom is more precious than jewels and nothing that we desire can compare with her. And the source of wisdom is, is rightly described in Proverbs and other places in the Bible as God himself. He's the source of wisdom. Uh, James chapter 1 states, if we lack wisdom, we ought to ask God, and he'll generously give us wisdom. So we might rightly picture God as the source of the river of wisdom, that he's the source from which that river flows. It's all from him. But the Bible also helps us to recognize that there are Using the river metaphor, there's, there's ponds, there's lakes of wisdom that have been filled by that river from God. And those ponds and lakes are often found in the lives of our elders. Titus chapters 1 and 2 speak about older men and, and older women setting an example in their conduct, but also in instructing others. It's the, the wisdom they've acquired from God through the years which qualifies them to give that instruction, equips them to give that instruction. In Proverbs chapter 20 
Verse 29 says, the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. And, and what that proverb is pointing out is that a decrease of physical ability does not mean a decrease of value or a decrease of work to do. The gray hair is a symbol of the wisdom that would come as one has spent their life working unto the Lord. So if we, if we kind of circle back around to Numbers chapter 8, I think it's telling that the Levite men who are, who are 50 years old and older aren't told to just stop working altogether, but to instead minister to, to assist their younger Levite brothers in their tasks. And the wording in Numbers chapter 8 even speaks of continuing to keep guard of the tabernacle. The, the, the tabernacle needed to be guarded so that, that no one would unintentionally or purposefully come into the tabernacle in an improper way. And so defile the tabernacle, defile the holy place, the most holy place. So in many ways, the, the wisdom that comes from years of discipleship along with the opportunities afforded by retiring from occupational work, creates a situation in which God's people can be blessed from the wise instruction of those willing to keep working for the Lord in that way. So, uh, you know, whether, whether you're in the season of retirement now or, or whether that's something that might be yet to come, it's worth asking, how can my retirement be a blessing for others in the area of instruction, specifically? And maybe that's in a formal setting. Maybe it's something like a Sunday school class or a Bible study, but it's not limited to that by any means. Uh, will I share wisdom with my kids, with my grandkids? Will I share wisdom through mentoring relationships, mentoring situations? Uh, will I do the hard work of seeking to understand the current culture so that I can speak wisely into it? Now, those, are, those are good questions that we can ask ourselves. Uh, a church or a society, for that matter, that minimizes those who possess a wealth of God's wisdom is doing a disservice to itself, whether it's the church or whether it's a society. But along with that, those who possess a wealth of God's wisdom but don't lovingly share that with others are missing a great opportunity to work in ways which they are well qualified to do, ways that benefit the church or society in general. So the blessings of service, the, the, the blessing of instruction, those are just two of the bigger ones, I think, that come with modern retirement, if we will rightly understand that, that retiring from occupational work isn't retiring from all work, which God has for us to do. And so I wanted to, I wanted to close the sermon today and really close the entire series these past four weeks by reminding us of the words in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. It says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we've been created by God himself, 
not just to work, but to do good work for him, to do good work in service of him, in worship of him. So good work in the office, good work at the job site, good work in our homes, good work in in our classroom, uh, in our neighborhood, uh, good work on the governing board, good work in the church. So may we, may, we, may we be individuals and may we be a church body who powerfully reflect the image of God upon us through our work. Now, the details of that work is going to change as we go throughout our life. I mean, it'll probably change numerous times as we go through the different seasons of life. But through it all, whatever we do, in word or deed, may we do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, working as for the Lord, not for men. And when we say working not for men, that means not working for other men, other people, but also ourselves. We can work for ourselves at times instead of working for the Lord. We're called in whatever we do to do it as unto the Lord. That's the, if you take one thing away from these four weeks, take that. Whatever we do, whatever the work is that God has called us to and leads us into, we do it unto him, serving him, worshiping him through it. And so with that, would you stand with me and let's, let's dedicate ourselves to God in that way. We might walk in the good works that he has for us. God, we come before you this morning and we're thankful, really, that you give us work to do. God, you've created us in that way. And, and so would you, would you guide us? Would you help us to, to see how our work truly is, is service, is worship? Would you help us to see that about our occupational jobs? Would you help us to see that about the things, the ways that we serve here at church? Would you help us to see that about the most seemingly menial task that we do in our day? We want to do all of it in worship of you, proclaiming your image. God, would you guide us in that? Direct us. Reveal to us what that looks like. Sometimes in the moment it can be, it can be hard to, to see that, but, but would you reveal that to us? And even if we're just not sure, God, how, how what we're doing plays into the big picture, help us to trust you anyway and to still do it unto you. God, I give you praise for each person here. We're, we are all wonderfully made. We're all uniquely made. It, it's really a joy to, to see that lived out in so many different ways. God, continue to help us to do that. May we be a collective body that is filled with individuals serving you. God, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that you redeem us. I thank you that you even empower us to work for you in a way that's honoring to you. So God, as we come to you now, as we continue our worship of you through singing, 
May we dedicate ourselves to you, not, not just through the words that we speak, but, but those words being lived out. We're lived out as, as we depart through these doors, go through the rest of our day, lived out on Monday and Tuesday and, and every other day. God, we give you the praise this morning. It's you that we worship. And these things we pray in your name. Amen.